Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. It's Friday, November 10th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, if people are listening to this late in the day, we are actively hanging out in person. (laughs) Yes, finally. We were just talking before this about how it feels like we see each other like every whatever, every couple of weeks. And we actually don't like, I haven't seen you since June, but if it yeah. literally feels like I've seen you like two days ago, which is, it's just a wild thing. Yeah. And I'm acutely aware of the fact that like when we record this, we're doing it virtually over zoom, but it still seems like, yeah, every so often I'm like, yeah, I see Nick all the time. What do, what do you mean? We haven't hung out in five months. Looking forward to it, buddy. <laughs> Let's not go five months before then. I actually definitely see each other over the holidays as well. Look at us going from five months to two months in a row. Who would have thought? Dude, the holiday season brings people together. You know, it's just the nature of the holiday season. I love it. Yeah. And let's bring the TPT fans together for one wholesome episode of the planet today right now. for our quick hits for the week. The first one is by Christopher J. Preston, who writes, why grazing bison could be good for the planet, for the BBC. This article, I think, is is so cool. And if you are a habitat restoration fan out there, instead of just a habitat preservation or conservation fan, this is the one for you. So this article discusses how the North American plains have been used for cattle grazing for the last 150 years or so, which has greatly altered the landscape. And it's interesting how we're talking about cattle cattle grazing as kind of the opponent to wild bison because mm. bison and cows are are so similar in their in their genetics and their behaviors but in the way that they graze very very different. So today we have indigenous tribes and conservation groups that have been working to bring back bison in an attempt to restore the grasslands to something more similar to the way they once were. Gila Shaman of the Smithsonian's National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute is featured in this article for her study on prairie streams, which suggests that bison boost biodiversity and are very efficient ecosystem engineers. Bison eat roughly 25 pounds of grass per day. After eating, the remaining grasses adapt to bison foraging. Vegetation throughout the ecosystem uses bison dung as a natural fertilizer, and birds will take the fur out of bison dung to use for their nests. The other interesting thing that bison do is shape the land by creating wallows, which are indents in the land that hold water after rainstorms. They do this by rolling around in the dust and weighing around 2,000 pounds while they do it. That's a great image. Yeah, I mean, like the the thing that I I kind of was thinking when I was reading this is bison just chill as hard as possible. And that's how they perform as ecosystem engineers. <laughs> like, let's talk about two iconic ecosystem engineers here for a second. You have the bison, which is just like, yeah, I'm going to eat 25 pounds of grass and I'm just going to go roll around and, and shape everything. Then you have the beaver, which just never stops working. It's like, oh, 
water is flowing. I'm going to change that. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to damn that up right now. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And what's interesting too, is it's not just American bison that do this. There's another article that was published by Lund University in Sweden, and it found that elephants, bison over in Europe, and moose improve tree diversity. So Professor Jens Christian Svenning, the study's senior author, found a, quote, substantial association between the biomass of large herbivores and varied tree covers in protected areas. What that means in more plain speak is large herbivores help shape, develop, and maintain natural ecosystems. The press release for this study says the UN has declared the 2020s as the decade of ecosystem restoration. In total, 115 countries have agreed to restore up to 100,000 square kilometers of nature in total. So one way to help maintain and improve our tree cover is to protect these large herbivores. Which I think is super important because a lot of times when we talk about protecting large herbivores, we do it because, you know, I know I think we used this phrase on the show last week, if not two weeks ago, um, charismatic megafauna. These yes. giant animals that we care a lot about. We're talking about our elephants, our whales are tigers, you know, all of these animals, when you think of conservation, you think of wildlife, those that just pop into your head, those beautiful, iconic images. And usually we'll talk about how that also means protecting microbiology. That also means protecting insects. That also means protecting the smaller mammals that tigers eat, stuff like that. But in this case, what we're talking about is it's not like we're just protecting those charismatic megafauna because they're important and because they look cool and they're beautiful. We're protecting them because they're also just really important for the, the natural ecosystem that they live in, whether yeah. it's serving as an engineer like bison are, serving as the apex predator and keeping other populations at bay. That way crops don't get overeaten like tigers would do. You know, they, they're all important, not just because of intrinsic value, like they're important because they are important. They're important because they serve a massive, massive role in these ecosystems. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think my one takeaway from this this article is just like, wow, nature is just so damn cool. Yeah. Like you don't have to do anything. It's just they just everything just works together and like it just is very calming. I don't know. I sound probably like I'm just a complete crusty, crunchy, like nature valley bar right now, but it's just really cool. It's it's really awesome to see the way that things interact with each other and the way that these, like you're saying, the megafauna interact with the environment and do so much to improve their own ecosystem, but also, you know, ecosystems surrounding it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, just one thing I'd like to touch on before we move on to the next story, the American bison, I think, is a really interesting conservation success story because at the turn of the 19th century, we wiped out almost the entire population of 50 million bison as settlers pretty much hunted them for sport just to prove that we could. And this was largely done to assert dominance over indigenous peoples who viewed the bison as both an important part of their lives and an important part of their cultures. And as we, talking about Americans here, started to move out West and, you know, manifest destiny, expand, expand, expand. We wiped out a really important animal to the people that were here before us. And that sucks. Like for lack of a better word, that is really, really shitty. But thanks to the hard work of the American Bison Society, Wildlife Conservation Society, indigenous tribes and conservation scientists, wild bison numbers today have gone up from around 1,800 at their lowest to over 20,000 wild bison. It's about 50,000 more that are used for uh, bison farming 
for meat. Um, but yeah, 20,000, which is still so much lower than they were at their peak, but their population is now considered near threatened instead of critically endangered like they were uh, when their when their numbers were at 1,800 bison left. Yeah, and shout out to all those conservation groups that that work so hard to to build those numbers up. That's an awesome fight that you're fighting. So keep it going. All right, let's move into our next story, and it's from MSN, where Gopal Sharma writes, Nepal earthquake kills at least 128. Tolls could rise, officials say. Dozens more were also injured when a magnitude 6.4 earthquake hit Nepal at 11.47 p.m. last Friday. This is the deadliest earthquake for the country since 9,000 people were killed in Nepal in 2015. That earthquake resulted in entire towns being destroyed, including more than 1 million homes and caused $6 billion worth of damage to their economy. So, you know, the, the fallout from this is still ongoing. Um, obviously, the, the toll is much lower than it was in 2015. Um, that's not to say that the, the amount of homes destroyed won't be. That's not to say that the economic damage won't be. And that's also not to say that, wow, at least 9,000 people didn't die like happened eight years ago. No, I mean, even if this number stays at 128, that is terrible. That is too many. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not really much to add here, aside from just, as always, our our thoughts go out to people impacted and to the rescue teams. Um, Yeah. Some information on the earthquake itself. The quake's epicenter was in the village of Ramadanda, and many houses collapsed in the surrounding towns and villages. Rescue efforts have been made more difficult by the landslides that were triggered by the earthquake thus far. So again, ongoing story as far as uh, recovery goes, but thoughts are, are definitely with all, all of the people that are impacted. And this is, you know, it's one of those natural disasters that we hate talking about. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's far too common and something that we always, we're always going to mention on the show at least. Absolutely. And I, you know, I do hope that um, there's enough aid going out from, neighboring countries um and just hoping that 128 is is as high as it's going to go so yeah i i agree um with that let's move into this week's environmental policy roundup in delhi india primary schools closed between november 5th through november 10th due to high levels of air pollution sixth through 12th grade classes were given the option to move to online classes the city's air quality index rating on sunday was 471 and if like me you weren't sure what is considered a good aqi Uh, Anywhere between 0 to 50. Levels between 400 to 500 are considered dangerous. So again, this was at 471. Alexandria, Virginia has agreed to a settlement with the Potomac Riverkeeper Network to engage in coal tar and creosote cleanup within the Potomac River. A gas manufacturing plant in Alexandria suffered a leak over 45 years ago, which has caused the pollutants to leach into the river ever since then. Part of the remediation includes a $300,000 project to add more than 20,000 freshwater mussels to the river. Danish wind company Ørsted has canceled two offshore wind projects that were to be located off of New Jersey's coast, citing high inflation, rising interest rates, and supply chain issues. This is a blow to President Biden's plans of deploying 30 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity in the U.S. waters by the end of the decade. But it's also a blow to the largest wind power company in the world's plans to develop the Horn Sea 3 offshore wind project off the coast of the United Kingdom, as officials now worry that a similar cancellation could happen. And before we move on, I just wanted to briefly touch on that second story that Nikki brought up. We talked about environmental engineers and, and natural ecosystem 
influencers, if we want to call them that, um, in our first story of the day, muscles are another one. You know, they serve as this natural filter for waterways. So I'm always really interested in how wildlife and conservationists can work together. So kind of cool to see that not only is Alexandria going to, you know, have the Potomac River nearby cleaned up, um, they're also doing it by installing, I guess installing might not be the right word, but like planting 20,000 freshwater mussels into the river to help with that remediation of filtering out those toxins, letting those mussels develop, reproduce, and, you know, ultimately create more workers. <laughs> but also like, it's just cool. Yeah, that, it is really cool. And I did not know that, that, that mussels um, serve as a, basically a filtration system. Yeah. That's sick makes me not want to eat muscles but like still cool can i correct you on something real quick yeah hit me you did know that because we talked about that for the hudson river one time maybe two years ago that was oysters um, we talked about how oh shit, you're right come on come on in my fucking house uh yeah i stand corrected on my correction and that's why uh that's why we're a team here. We're not going to get it right all the time, but we're going to give it our best. As always, those stories are in your show notes. If you want to read for more detail, we are going to take a quick break. We've got two more for you when we get back. Stay tuned. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, a tropical disease carried by sandflies is confirmed in a new country, the U.S., by NPR's Max Barnhart. This is about leishmaniasis, which between 600,000 to 1 million people get infected with every year, according to the World Health Organization. It's typically found in the Mediterranean, the Middle East, Central Asia, and the tropical Americas, but not usually in the United States. The CDC has just confirmed the findings of a 2018 report that found a 2014 case of the disease originated in the U.S. A three-year-old boy from Texas is thought to have caught the disease from a parasite that had been living in the U.S. for years before the diagnosis. The disease is usually spread through sandflies, which are about a fourth of the size of a mosquito, and live in wooded areas and grasslands. Most of the infections in the U.S. have been found in Texas, but the sandflies that could transmit the disease can be found throughout several southern U.S. states. And what's interesting about leishmaniasis is that most people do not show symptoms, and some actually never develop symptoms. 
Those that do might think that it's simply acne before it becomes a chronic ulcer-type lesion over a longer period of time. It's not a life-threatening disease, which is fortunate because there are actually no specific medical ways to prevent getting it. You can treat it with an oral medicine for 28 days, um, but the, the best way to prevent it is just covering your arms and legs with long pants, long sleeve shirts, whatever you're in sandfly territory. Climate change is projected to make this more common as people will interact with sandflies more. Some models predict that 12 million people could be exposed to leishmaniasis along with the 1 billion people across the world that are currently exposed. Of those exposures, around 1 million people get infected annually. So, you know, it's not a great hit rate, right? We have 1 billion people across the world that are currently exposed and 1 million people that are infected. So that's about one out of every 1,000 people that are exposed get infected. But that number is not zero. And Mm -hmm. we have more than a billion people. And we have more people that are projected to become infected by this as more people get exposed. You know, we're talking about here 12 million people more could be exposed in the U.S. But what about the rest of the world? So that, that number is going to go up as well. Infected is going to go up as well. And, and luckily there is an oral medicine. But what's scary for me is that people don't show symptoms and some never show symptoms. But right. some people, they're not going to show. And then all of a sudden, boom. They're going to have acne. It's going to get worse. And you might not even realize like, oh yeah, I was in sandfly territory 30 days ago. Yeah. You know, it's like, imagine if poison ivy, which you and I have gotten a few times, um, imagine that had a longer incubation period and all of a sudden weeks later, it's like, oh my gosh, what is this? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely got to be a bit um, confusing and if you are living in one of those, you know, southern U.S. states um, that we're talking about here, you might want to consider, like you said, wearing those long sleeves, uh, long pants, sweats, whatever, um, when you're going into sandfly territory or marshlands or woodlands, anything like that. Uh, if I was down there, I would certainly be wearing that stuff. I don't care how hot it is. I don't want crazy freaking acne on my face. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a good point, but also you got to remember, like you, you brought up the heat. And let's talk about it, right? Like, so as this disease becomes more common and as exposure becomes more prevalent, it's also going to get hotter. And and that's the issue with climate change is we're finding that there are so many insect, mosquito, like whatever it is, born diseases that are going to become more common as the climate continues to get hotter. So for something where the only real way to prevent it is like layer up with something that's going to not let your body's sweat evaporate as easily. This is one of those real world applications of climate change without just being like, Oh, well, it's going to get hotter. I'm going to sweat more. Like this is, this is one of those things where, look, I don't care if you don't live near a coastline and you're thinking sea level rise won't affect you much. It will. And a lot of that has to do with the economic fallout from sea level rise. But, but this is something where like, regardless of where you live, this is a, a real world impact that people will see and people will be like, yeah, I understand that there's going to be more mosquitoes or whatever it is, sand flies in this case. I understand that. So this is a, a concerning story, but a good one to maybe show that climate dissenter in your life who thinks, oh, it's not a big deal. It's overplayed. Boom. In your face, dude. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's move on to our last quick hit of the week. And it's from Reuters where Valerie Volkovici and Kate Abnett write, Impasse broken on climate fund before COP28, but tough road ahead. 
On Sunday, a deadlock ahead of COP28 was avoided as a 24-member United Nations committee decided to support a, quote, take-it-or-leave-it deal that would make the World Bank the interim home of a new climate disaster fund. It will encourage all countries to contribute to this fund, but does not require contributions, which troubles me a little bit, if I'm being completely honest. The recommendation urges developing countries to take the lead in capitalizing the fund and also invites contributions from other countries and funding sources like carbon markets. There is no legal obligation to pay into this fund. So it's more like a charity than a tax. In the past, we've seen richer countries refuse to accept these obligations, which makes me worried that they're going to be fine with not doing anything voluntarily this time around as well. The fund itself will be dedicated to losses and damages related to floods, droughts, and rising sea levels for nations that are particularly vulnerable. Negotiators in the committee have made recommendations that will next be put in front of the almost 200 governments participating in COP28 in Dubai between November 30th and December 12th. The article calls out the big questions that remain before COP28 and says, A U.S. State Department official welcomed the fact that the committee agreed on many aspects of loss and damage funding, but expressed regret that the text does not reflect consensus concerning the need for clarity on the voluntary nature of contributions. This is reportedly about a footnote not being added that plainly states that contributions to the fund are voluntary. Egypt had raised concerns about the size of the fund and clearer obligations for richer nations, which could lead to issues if countries attempt to renegotiate the deal at COP28. Yeah, and the European Union is already planning to contribute to this fund, despite the fund not clearly outlining its rules or which countries would be in line to receive funding. And, you know, like Nick had mentioned, those are those are two issues that could open up a can of worms if this gets renegotiated. And the article closes with a really important quote that I'm just going to read here verbatim. If rich nations fail to follow through, it could reopen decades-old fights that have derailed past climate deals. With poorer nations demanding compensation from rich nations for causing climate change or refusing to agree to cut emissions faster without substantially more financial funding from rich countries. This, to me, comes off as when somebody needs help paying for their medical bills, this is something that like literally only our U.S. listeners are going to be able to relate to. But people will start to go fund me and it's like, please help me do this instead of just like requiring everybody to chip in a little bit for something that's going to impact the whole world. You know, in, in this case, we're we're saying, please, rich nations, do the right thing. When have they ever? So I, I'm sorry if I'm sounding cynical or, or skeptical, but like. I, I want to see it clearly outlined and, and, you know, kudos to Egypt is the one that was called out in this article, but I'm sure there were other countries in this, this group saying we need this to say very plainly what the obligation is for richer countries. Now, maybe it wasn't included because richer nations wouldn't agree to sign anything. If it was clearly laid out, you have to contribute X amount of your GDP every year, mm-hmm. or you have to contribute based on how much your historical emissions have been. Either one of those would be more than fair, in my opinion. But what we're seeing here is another voluntary thing that maybe it'll work this time, but I am hoping that the rest of COP28 is much stronger. And this this part of the negotiation isn't like our make or break loss and damage fund is, is the the big takeaway 
out of COP28 this year because honestly, I just I don't see another voluntary fund working any differently than it has in the past. Yeah, I think this is one of those things where you just have to press the ones that are the most responsible. And like, I don't know if we do have a number as to like, hey, you're responsible for this percentage of climate change because of all of the... We do. It's been outlined since Paris. Yeah, there you go. So damages should be proportional to how much damage you've done over the past X amount of years. I wholeheartedly agree with you. The issue is that the countries that are more responsible have all the power in this negotiation and they're just going to say no. Yeah, they'll just say, no, we're not going to do it. I think I especially think when you start talking about percentage of GDP, they're like, oh, absolutely not. Like, there's no chance. Yeah, it's like, just trust us to do the right thing. Like, yeah, no. (laughs) Yeah, you haven't shown anything that that would say that. So uh, big no. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not to say that we can't change. It's not to say that, um, you know, maybe this time around countries are, are I'm using countries as this like big sweeping term, but it, it's a few of them, right? Like there's a few countries that are yeah. still mm, being a roadblock in climate negotiations. We'll say maybe this time they'll understand the gravity of the steel and maybe this time it will work. But until I see that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get my hopes up. Yeah. COP28 runs this year from November 30th to December 12th. So for December 15th, Nick and I are going to be heavily focusing on that negotiation. Um, That's probably going to be our last new episode of the year. And we'll do just some best of interviews to round out the rest of December. If you're thinking, hey, that COP28 episode sounds awesome, but I don't know the history of this. Make sure you tune in next Friday. We're going to do a quick everything you need to know before COP28 episode. It's going to focus on the past few COP agreements the past few COP negotiations and some of the stronger international climate agreements of the past three decades. You know, I, I just mentioned Paris, but we're going to talk about Montreal Protocol, Kyoto Protocol. Some of these things that you might have never heard of before, you might have heard of and don't really know what they are. It's all a really important thing to look into before we get into this year's biggest climate negotiation. Yeah, absolutely. Make sure you tune in for that episode. It's going to be great. It's going to be extremely informative. A lot of good information. So definitely check that out. And we'll try to keep it short and concise and fun. That's going to do it for today's episode of TPT. Like we said, tune in next Friday for another episode. I think it's going to be one of our better ones in terms of just learning something valuable. Until then, go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Nick Chanus produces our show and makes all of the music you've been listening to throughout this episode. Nick, where can people hear more of your stuff? You can hear more of my stuff at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo is made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll catch you right here next Friday. Peace!